It's an interesting thing in these retreat environments that uh, sometimes in the practice meetings, uh, even though you're not talking with each other or sharing experiences or anything like that, in these practice meetings, sometimes a certain theme can start to emerge. So I'm always inclined to tune into that and to notice when that's happening um, because it sometimes stimulates a certain kind of reflection and a particular kind of Dharma talk that might be uh, useful. So this week there's been a lot of discussion both direct and indirect on the theme of anatta this not-self, non-self, no-self, all the different ways it's sometimes translated, which is a very important piece of the Buddha's teaching. And in particular, this teaching of uh, not-self is one of the hallmarks of Buddhism. When the Buddha talked in this way, he talked about all things being not-self, he was really going against a widely held philosophical and religious view of his time that there was something eternal or there was some kind of fixed essence which human beings had. And this thing that was uh, seen as eternal or fixed Uh, was often referred to as Atman by other religious thinkers. And he said, uh, Anatta, not self, is the shared characteristic of all conditioned things. Not Atta or Atman. So the Buddha was saying in this, no, you're not going to find something fixed which owns experience or controls it or that stands outside uh, the matrix of causation. And in fact, taking up this view of me, mine, self creates many problems. And he saw it as a view that this was a way that human beings commonly understand what's going on as they meet or know experiences at the six sense doors or when they notice the presence or the arising of the five aggregates. They tend to relate to it through this this view that the Buddha would consider to be an overlay of I, me, mine or me, mine, self. And he says, you know, if you look at it that way, you're really creating a lot of problems for yourself. Because when you envision there being a fixed me, the idea comes with it that it's all happening to this fixed me, to this one. And the Buddha says that's a wrong understanding of what's going on. That's what he called Sakaya Ditti, 
wrong view or self-view. In other words, it's a false self-referential center with the idea of there being some actual or um, putative master control involved with things. So this is part of what the Buddha said at the time about this. And these are readings from uh, a very useful book, uh, an anthology from the Pali Canon by Bhikkhu Bodhi called uh, In the Buddha's Words. And Bhikkhu Bodhi's comment on this says that uh, clinging to the five aggregates occurs in two modes. The five aggregates being a way of looking at human experience as form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. He says, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, clinging to the five aggregates occurs in two principal modes which we might call appropriation and identification. Those are the two, appropriation and identification. One either grabs them and takes possession of them, that is, one appropriates them, or one uses them as the basis for views about oneself or for conceit. Meaning, this reflective um, response of mind to go, okay, I'm better than that, I'm as good as that, I'm inferior to others. One of those three views, better than, the same as, worse than. That, he says, identifies ourselves with these arisings. But in the Nikaya, the Buddha says, this being prone to think of the aggregate says, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. Etam mamam isoham asmi isome ata. In this phrase, the notion, this is mine, represents the act of appropriation which is a function of craving. The notions this I am and this is myself represent two types of identification, the former expressing conceit or mana, the latter views. So the instructed noble disciple is seen with wisdom, the selfless nature of the aggregates and no longer regards them as a self or as belonging to a self. In another place, he talks about, he's talking to his monks and he's talking about this identity, identity view, the Sakaya Ditti and how it comes to be. And he says, here monks, the uninstructed worldling, I kind of like that phrase, uninstructed worldling. It says, okay, n- has received no teachings, right? Doesn't, doesn't know is a bit like uh, an infant lying in their, uh, in their baby bed looking up at, up at a mobile like this, trying to figure it out, doing that pattern recognition thing that all human beings do, and having come to some conclusions sort- supported by the common cultural understanding of 
this being I, me, mine. They have the identity view, but he says, here monks, the uninstructed worldling regards form as self or as self-possessing form, or form as in-self, or self as in-form. And then he goes, he regards feeling as self, and he goes through the other uh, aggregates. Perception as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self, or self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in-self, or self as in-consciousness. This is how identity view comes to be. But he says the instructed noble disciple does not regard form as self or self as possessing form or form as in self or self as in form. Then he goes through the other aggregates and says the same thing about them. So this characteristic of not-self, the Buddha says in his reasoning, one of the ways that you could, you could prove the truth of his position is by saying, okay, if there's this Atman thing that's being talked about, this eternal thing that's there behind it, that's kind of governing all of it, perhaps not... Uh, in a way that we're conscious of it. But if there's this thing behind it, this powerful um, thing behind it, then how come you can't say, uh, okay, consciousness, con- form don't lead to suffering, consciousness don't lead to suffering, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. In other words, how come you can't govern this if there's somebody behind there in control of it all. <clears throat> and he's saying the ungovernability of phenomenon is a proof that this idea of this eternal uh, something behind it all is not true. Or, let's put it this way, he says, those kinds of ideas are not functionally useful. And this is something... Um, that really strikes me about the Buddhist teachings. That you could understand everything that he says as literally true and or you can think of everything that he says as skillful means, particular ways of coaching the heart and mind in the direction of development into wisdom with the goal of the release of suffering caused by unskillful, unuseful suppositions and uh, presuppositions, conscious or unconscious. So there are a lot of things in the Buddha's teaching where he speaks more in terms of uh, don't think of it like that. If you think of it like that, you're going to get yourself all messed up. Yeah. If you think of sense pleasure as capable of providing lasting satisfaction and you become immersed with that as uh, your goal for your, your life to get a lot of that and keep it, you're, you're going to 
trip yourself up. That kind of thing is not available on that channel. So many of his teachings are, from my perspective, are almost uh, via negativa. Anybody familiar with that term? I remember hearing this in a college philosophy class, or perhaps it was an exposition on the the way of a, a, a great saint or something. But it's basically a way of saying, not that, not that, not that, not that, not that. Don't get bound up with that. Don't get bound up with that. Don't get trapped by that. Just keep letting go, keep letting go, keep letting go. Nothing that you can imagine, nothing that you can put into words, no no sandcastle you can build in your head can be it. It just can't. Because it's all a recycling of your existing suppositions and conditioning, conscious or not. But this self-view, when it's present, does give us, as the Buddha points out indirectly, an ownership attitude towards experience and the impulse to control what is mine, which we then try to exercise. So this is an unnecessary complexification and not helpful. But it's so common a perspective, it can be difficult to see or question. So there's exploration necessary to realize that this self-referential way of going about practice is not helpful. Although um, this path, this way of practicing can actually be instructive, but in a painful experiential way when we try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. The command and control model, the conforming of a self to uh, an imagined ideal, um, that's an abstraction or an image that we carry in our mind is not really particularly helpful. But let's look at some different ways to practice, given that we start out with this uh, view that the Buddha says is not particularly helpful, usually well established in our heart and mind, right? So first thing to say is that uh, all ways of practicing are not equally effective. So it's important to be clear about what we're attempting to do when we engage in spiritual practice so we don't waste time and effort. Practice can be done with a lot of different intentions and expectations and a lot of different suppositions. So whatever our real goal is, conscious or unconscious, will shape our efforts and how we do practice, often in ways that we don't recognize. And this will greatly influence whether they work or not. So understanding what you're undertaking and why makes a big difference in how you approach this undertaking. So I was thinking about this for a, a number of different reasons where I, 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 um, 
I noticed a couple of different situations that struck me as occasions where you could see people trying with sincerity um, to do, do things, but their whole frame for getting it done was way off. So I re- recently saw something on uh, television with uh, Sacha Baron Cohn, where, yes, this is the, the lofty viewing that Dharma teachers do in their, <laughs> their time off. Uh, so I was watching this where he, and Sacha Baron Cohn um, is a real setup art- artist. Um, for those who, of you who know his previous work. So he came to the United States and he interviewed a number of people who have what I would consider fundamentalist mental tendencies. Let's, let's put it that way, right? Like that's how their mind tends to work. You know, their minds are literal and not particularly uh, skeptical or investigative. So he pre- in each case, he would pretend to be someone and would set up a meeting with this particular person under what were actually false pretenses. And then he would um, feed them some absurd story that most people would quickly recognize as a fab- fabrication. Like the average cynical, skeptical, grounded reality testing kind of person would go, you know, this feeling like, mm, pretty early on in the process. But in most of these cases, he actually got people to act in certain dysfunctional and silly ways, reliant upon his suggestions and representations. They just kind of like bought into his storyline of, you know, being able to scare away ISIS by pulling down your pants because, you know, they're afraid of homosexuality, so if they see your butt, they'll run away. I, this was actually one of his things that he did. And, and uh, you know, this, this political, political guy actually did this. Okay, so all the attendant conversations there were actually inane. And, of course, the audience was probably uh, generating a feeling of superiority by seeing the lack of sophistication and rationality of those he interviewed. But the people he so duped were uh, believed in some kind of cause and effect. Something about what he was saying seemed to them that 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 could be plausible, that somebody, you know, with this uh, parent... uh, resume would meet with you and tell you these things and ask you to do these things. And so it, they were just unknowing. So, But they saw some sort of desirable or specific outcome that might come from engagement with this person. And then I saw um, on another channel uh, somebody who was on one of those global religious channels. And he was talking about the special time that was happening in the Holy Land right now. And there was, some, there was something related to the religious calendar there. Something that was going on in the Holy Land right now. And if you made a large gift right now, 
then that would mean that your prayer, um, you know, would go on wings uh, directly to God's ear, and so it would have uh, particular potency. And he continued on with this theme for a long period of time, which led me to believe that somebody was sending him money in response to this particular request, right? That it was working for him, if not for them. I, you know, don't know, but... So, you know, in both of these cases, I found myself going, what, what's Jesus? how can you believe that? Being what I described earlier as, you know, sort of skeptical and <laughs> a little bit, you know, uh, having a permanently plugged in BS detector. But, then I started thinking about it and I realized, well, you know, it's not only fundamentalist groups that approach things with hopes of specific outcomes, right? And I started thinking about, well, what about some of the stuff you see in Yoga Journal or you, you see in, uh, you know, Lion's Roar or you see in Tricycle? You know, there's a lot of stuff for sale in those too, right? Or the spiritual singles match sites or, you know, the ads for meditation paraphernalia or, you know, books or, you know, jewelry or that kind of thing. So I wondered, you know, are the prosperity gospel models and the mind we Western seekers bring to Buddhist practice that different, you know? Are we trying to get the same thing basically and end in somewhat similar ways? And at an early stage in our practice, it's difficult to actually answer that question about what mind you're bringing to practice because you haven't in a certain kind of way uncovered your mind yet. You ha have at best a nodding acquaintance <laughs> with your stream of consciousness. Because right? generally off in the default setting and lost and rummaging around in these thought worlds that we create. And of course the Buddha says that self-view or sakaya ditti, uh, skeptical doubt and the attribution of magical effects to rites and rituals only fall away at stream entry. So until then... These are all influencing how we're holding practice. So let's assume that this might be in play in some cases. So I think that there's uh, two or three major approaches to spiritual practice. And which approach you use makes a good deal of difference. And it makes the practices functionally different because the understanding or view of the practice is actually different. And this determines where the path goes. If it goes any place or if it just kind of 
continues to, to recycle without there necessarily being any great, uh, greater clarification or reduction of suffering. So here's version one. This is a closed model. And I, I would characterize this as conformity to a predetermined ideal and or to existing preference. So the heart of the understanding, if you were, if you were able to you know, spit out the words that represented the starting point here, it would be something about spiritual practice uh, is a way to Im- improve the self to make it happy or to make it acceptable, whether that's to itself or to others or to idea of uh, God or the absolute. So I, I would say there, there are some manifestations or signs of this particular kind of approach. And one is there's a fixed agenda which is determined at the outset. In other words, you come in with something you want out of it. You know, so often there's a clear ideal and the spiritual path is a way to correct, to correct defects in the self or to enhance the self. So essentially you're practicing to get something, to fix the problem, which is you. <laughs> to fix the problem, which is you. There is a self and you is the self and you is a problem. So you need to fix it. So then there's the struggle to make the self be a different way. So conforming the self to this imagined ideal is the mark of success. And then from this, effort is is made to bring experience into compliance with ideas of right or wrong or good or bad. Now, we know from the, the Buddha's talk about skillful effort, that there's definitely a framework within the Buddhist teachings of skillful and unskillful, right? Kusala, a kusala, right? And that that's an important part of the teaching. But there's also in the Buddha's teaching an understanding that it is through wise relationship to the unskillful tendencies of mind that transformation is affected. Right, which is a different thing from thinking you shouldn't have it happening or you shouldn't have to deal with it when it's present, right? Or you're bad if you uh, have conditions or conditioning that causes unwholesome or unskillful states to arise. So with this close style of practice, there's often a lot of judgment in the mind And because there's a lot of self-judgment and identification with experience, there's often many internal no-go zones, right? So awareness can be kind of contracted and defensive uh, with a high need to control experience, right? Because if it's all about you, you know, there's just stuff that you wouldn't really want to be happening because it's a reflection on you. It's a reflection on the self that should be in control and should have it together and this stuff shouldn't be happening. So with this there's clinging or craving for the 
acceptable and the rejection of the unacceptable. Which, of course, makes it hard to see and then work skillfully with the hindrances that are there. So sometimes in this mode, our language betrays us. Right? So uh, if you find yourself uh, thinking or saying, I did this in relationship to an arising experience of like a thought or an emotion or a mental state or a physical sensation, I did this. Did you? Or is it more like this arose? Can you see the difference in the felt sense between those two perspectives? I did this versus this arose. The first being a place of ownership and responsibility for something, which is a conditioned arising which is largely backloaded. Right? Much, a great deal of what we, are, we experience in real time is actually coming from causes that have already happened in the past. And you can see the difficulty of holding an identity view given that that's the case. Because you can't actually control it. So in a certain kind of way, this bhavana or spiritual development that the Buddha talks about is seen as something that needs to be acquired as a uh, an, uh, personal adornment or compensation. It can save us from feelings of being wrong and inadequate. And often the view is, you know, well, maybe this can be attained by compliance with scripture and spiritual leaders or by doing certain spiritual practices in a ritualistic kind of way. Right? So there's not, like, not a seeing into the mechanism of it. It's, it's kind of like, you know, if I just, for instance, do the walking practice, but I'm not really, you know, present with it, but I'm doing the walking practice, somehow... You know, doing the thing is going to create something. So here's some examples uh, of thoughts that might indicate this model is operating. Um, if I do this retreat, I might be able to change my personality. Has anybody had that one? Well, good luck with that. <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> um, uh, I'm experiencing anger when I meditate. Uh, that's bad, I'll block it out. I'm supposed to be a peaceful person. Right? I, I told this story on myself uh, earlier this month about re- recognizing this, this thought of ill will and ar- arise and how it arose in my mind. But fortunately or unfortunately, since I don't carry the idea that I shouldn't be experiencing anything that I actually do experience, I didn't particularly suffer from it, nor did I, nor was I compelled to act on it after I uh, shoved it into unconsciousness because it didn't conform to a self-view. 
So here's another one. Um, if I can attain the jhanas, it's proof of my good karma. Then I'll know I'm a, basically a good person. Because there are some teachings that say something like, well, you know, if, if, uh, if the sila is strong and there's a lot of wholesomeness in the mind, it conduces the mind to concentration and, uh, you know, makes it easier to cultivate the jhanas. Okay, fair enough. But then we take it and we turn it into uh, a weapon by saying, well, you know, if I'm still working on concentration, I'm not finding it so easy, then that must mean that I'm bad. And that's really bad to be bad, and so I have to attain the jhanas. Well, you know, what could be a bigger concentration killer than having that going on in your mind while you're sitting there trying to attend to the anapana spot. I gotta get this, I gotta get this, I gotta get this. If I don't get this, it's because I'm bad, you know? So, so I'm a, a bad sila, bad karma. Can you see how unhelpful that taking of the teaching is? Okay. So here's another one. If, if I'm enlightened, people will notice. <laughs> you know, you, you'll, be, you'll be walking down Main Street and, you know, the, the aura that is frequently portrayed around the, the head of saints that'll actually be present for you. And Okay, so the thing that all of these have in common is that they're putting spiritual practice to work to shore up an ego ideal that's formulated in spiritual terms, right? So the self-view is there. It's being formulated in, in spiritual terms as, as needing to be a certain way. So you could say that the, uh, the Sakaya Ditti is directing the practice and the practice is being done in service of the ego and its idealized self-image. But of course, as I said earlier, since we can't actually control a rising experience, you can see what the setup is. Now, having staked your self-esteem on how, how it's going and having a narrow view of what should be happening based on this fantasy of control, you got yourself a mess. Okay, that's model one. So let's take version two, which is, I'll call the open model where uh, touching reality corrects delusion, in t including the delusion of uh, Sakaya Ditti, self-view. So the heart of this understanding, which you can hold provisionally because the Buddha always talks about holding things provisionally and checking them out for yourself. But the heart of this understanding is that spiritual practice is an unfolding of truth moment by moment, step by step. So here, we offer our self-sense, however it's formulated, including our ego identity 
to the process, allowing it to be transformed and changed in unknown ways. So instead of there, there being a self-view that's, or a self-sense that's outside the practice, that's doing the practice or evaluating the practice, that self-sense is in the practice as an object, as a meditation object, as an arising. Right? It's not outside of it. It's inside of it. So some manifestations of this process of, of inclusion, of delusion, <laughs> inclusion of delusion. Put your delusion in there. Put your Sakaya Ditti in there. So with this understanding, holding an altruistic motivation, if we can, we seek the direction of development, but we surrender to the process, right? So we know the arc of, of the practice path. The Buddha talks about it in the Eightfold Path. You know, it's specifically uh, described in terms of things to do, things to refrain from, the four great efforts when we're talking about wise effort. So we know it's going in that way in some general sense. We know it has something to do with wisdom, uh, liberation of the mind through not clinging, seeing through delusion. But we understand that we actually don't know how the path will open or where the next steps will take us. We allow change without holding on to fixed ideas about destinations. So we'll say, okay, we're heading to Boston. We're heading to Boston. Boston's east. Okay, it's over there. But what's going to arise for us? What's going to happen on the actual path to Boston? We don't know. And we know we don't know. And so we pay attention to what's going on step by step, holding that compass of destination uh, in mind. So we're willing to be present and receptive and sensitive in an open-ended exploration of truth. Understanding that often what comes next is a surprise package. So how often have you had the experience on, uh, in practice of uh, getting a run in practice where things feel a particular kind of way you know, they say they feel easeful and clear and you're happy to be here and, you know, you feel like there's energy building and then all of a sudden you have a period where you go into, <laughs> you go into a sit or a day or a week and it's like, what happened? You know, where did it, where did it go? I thought, I thought it was going good. I thought it was, you know, moving in the direction that, that it should be. But often, that's just an organic part of the cycle of practice and not necessarily a problem. I mean, just because you know you're going to Boston and Boston is east and you've been walking on a good road doesn't mean you might not get to a place where there's just kind of like a flash flood washout. And that's where it is and that's where you got to practice if you want to go to Boston. So, 
it's a counterintuitive thing many times because we have this idea that uh, practices should be like a ramp up, you know. But really it's more like a sine wave kind of thing or a spiral kind of experience where often we will actually visit or revisit similar feeling territory that we thought we were done with or over with. Oh, this again. Oh, geez, this again. And really the subtext is, I thought I got rid of it. I got rid of it. Version one, command and control, right? Trying to make reality conform to our our preference. But here, in the second model of open practice, views and preferences and self-concepts, conceptual understandings, ego ideals, these are all objects of awareness when they arise and are seen. So everything is part of the process. There's not a self standing outside of it doing the practice, right? It's all in there. So there's not a self standing outside driving the process along an imaginary preordained destination. The self sense is in it, is in the field of practice. So this version of practice requires faith, but not blind faith. And you can see that integrity is highly valued here. And direct experience is the highest value in touching truth. And this is one of the things I so love about the Buddha's teaching was his unwavering commitment to acknowledging what he experienced in real time and working there and not not letting ideas about things obscure that. So the commitment here is to be open, to be mindfully present moment by moment, resting and letting go, surrendering to the truth of direct experience. So Continued over time, this mindful, non-resistant awareness leads to clear seeing. So you could say that delusion is cured by direct perception informed by the perspective of the Eightfold Path and not by application of preconceived beliefs or preferences. So this uh, skill and practice of the mind asking itself, what now, what now? Practicing with things as they have come to be, as it's sometimes said. Just this, just now, what's present, what's predominant? What is it, how is it, what's it doing? What's the Vedana? So prolonged connection with reality can actually cure delusion, but only if mindfulness is present. If you look at some of the descriptions of the awakened mind, it's basically a mind that rests in connection with reality as it arises at the six sense doors without objection or friction. 
And how interesting that this very process that we're practicing in Vipassana meditation is a training of the mind to rest in real time, knowing the arisings at the six sense doors and inclining the mind to be with them without resistance or clinging. So in a certain kind of way you could say, you're practicing the awakened mind by coming close to things. And this letting go of fixed ideas and preconceptions leads to the end of suffering. So here's some examples of what thoughts might be going on when you're operating in this kind of way. Okay? I'll sit with whatever arises, meeting it as skillfully as I can. Which is a different thing from, I don't like that one. <laughs> I don't like that one. I want, I want this. I want that one. I want that one I had earlier this morning, right? I don't know what's going to happen on this retreat. They're all different. Has anybody noticed the tendency of the mind to, to uh, go back on retreat after uh, a period of time and uh, to think you should be uh, picking up where you left off? You ever notice that one? <laughs> it's like, and usually your memory of where you left off is a little bit uh, shaky. Because usually your memory of where you left off was like the very best sitting you had the last time you were on retreat. <laughs> Somehow you're holding that as like a, a reasonable starting and sustaining point on your subsequent adventures. How about, uh, whoa, that's hatred I'm experiencing. Let me see what that is. Or how about... I noticed that when I was insulted, my self-sense got really strong and then the calaces really revved up. When I identified with what I experience, I suffer. So that's a very clear example of the mind being able to take the arising of, say, a defensive or... uh, particular kind of self-sense and see it as an arising experience, as an object, right? Which is a much less suffering state than they insulted me and I'm damn mad and I should be because they insulted me. In a certain kind of way, the, the Buddha removes the a Sakaya Ditti, the self-view from the center of everything and lets it arise and pass away and shape and reform itself, revise itself, take on different creative appearances as it will. So some people have the idea that this practice and this understanding of not-self or non-self or no self, as they're sometimes called, is about getting rid of any self-sense. You ever hear that? Either yourself think that, or hope for that, (laughs) hope for that, or fear that, or... 
Well, you probably don't need to fear it because it's probably, <laughs> probably not going to happen. But it's, why would you need to eliminate anything if you can clearly see it for what it is with mindfulness and wisdom? So it can be very instructive sometimes in your practice to undertake the exploration of all the different versions that may arise in the course, say, of a day. Do you ever look at that? How many different versions there are? Some people have, you know, a favorite. Well, maybe not favorite. Maybe <laughs> maybe it's more too painful to be a favorite, but a frequent, a frequent visitor of a particular self-view. But I think even those people, if you look... Um, more closely at what's going on uh, when Sakaya Ditti is there, when self-view is there and it's very active, I think you'll find that there's a lot of different versions. That they're, and just in the same way that other mental arisings can be tinted by uh, the mental factors that are present when they arise, so can self-view. Right? Sometimes you can have a partic- thought of a particular nature if it arises and the mind has some, say, some meta, even if it's a nasty kind of thought content-wise. It's really not particularly harmful. It might be noticeable as, a noti- as aversive or unpleasant. But it doesn't really stick. It just kind of moves through. And this is the same for the arising of of self-view. Some of them are very dense and contracted and defended and you can see that the mind really wants to implement something, make something happen in particular. But sometimes the sense of self can arise and it's really a much lighter thing. uh, Hardly has anything to it. So there's a lot of different versions that you have and they're all equally substantial. And the self is always not self. Not self in the way that the Buddha described. So now I just said there's two different ways that you can practice, one and two. But now I'm going to kind of take it back a little bit because I don't want to fall into the dangers I described in uh, detailing approach number one, you know, being an absolutist with fixed views about how things can unfold. So the Buddha said that the primary source of suffering is craving born from ignorant clinging. So to the extent that we're still ignorant, delusion and clinging are operant in our minds, And therefore, that means we will tend to practice generally unknowingly in the style of approach number one. Right? So I'm guessing that a number of you, when I was describing these two different ways of practicing, and you heard me talking about two, went, oh, shit. (laughs) Dharma seed. You better bleep that out. Okay. Get on that. (laughs) Uh, Eric. Uh, But... We can't because that's not our conditioning, right? We're conditioned to, to Sakaya Ditti. 
And when it's present and it's there and it's strongly operative, then, well, that's how the mind is going to be taken to what's going on and relating to it. So if we're trapped in style one mind, there's a tendency to judge and condemn ourselves for having a bad practice if we notice we're practicing in that way. So then the Sakaya Ditti uh, gets deployed and goes, well, I'm going to fight with this delusion. Now, think about that statement. I'm going to fight with this delusion. So, that's another way of saying, okay, I'm going to judge my judgment. Or I'm going to bring Sakaya Ditti to the arising of (laughs) Sakaya Ditti and get all torqued out about it. Which is a kind of judging judgment. Right? Like a house of mirrors kind of effect. But if you can remember that there may be a more panoramic option possible, then here there's a potential for noticing the arising of judgment or goal-seeking or identification with particular experiences or states with the seeing of the arising of those things in the same way that you watch the breath in a curious, interested, allowing kind of mind. Because your delusion arises in practice to be seen. So it's not like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so identified with all this stuff, I'm so identified with this stuff, I gotta get rid of this, <laughs> get rid of this identification. Maybe the skillful thing at that point would be to just turn the mind around and look directly at, oh, this experience in a very simple way, oh, this is wanting to get rid of. Oh, this is wanting to do it right. This is evaluating how well I'm doing. To incline the mind to take a very simple and direct approach to things. Because then these things are in the practice mix as well as everything else with nothing to be resisted or judged or even resisting the resistance or judging the judging. I mean, no matter how far out in terms of that you need to get in order to establish mindfulness in relationship to this, you can still, you can still do it. Inclining the mind to be very simple. You could make a note like, oh, this is like mushroom cloud of confusion. <laughs> right? This is feeling like an amateur, you know? This is like feeling like giving up. This is feeling futile. So there are no wrong states in any of this. So if you can allow all these things to be in the mix like everything else, this is the path to freedom with the mind purifying itself like a body of moving water does when it's allowed to flow.
allowed to flow. Now, having said all these things, don't think about it. Because thinking's bad, right? So you should have no thoughts arise in your mind in relationship to this Dharma talk. Now or in the future. That's a whole other topic, right? Thought and working with thought. And the somewhat suspect idea that thought should not arise in practice. Which I would say probably would be a feature of model number one. So this pointing that the Buddha did for us in the teaching of anatta, this is a very powerful perspective to take up. It's a powerful tool because it cuts through a lot of complexification that the mind tends to do. A lot of complexification and a lot, lot of rigidity that the mind tends to hold just letting things arise as they will, as they must, due to their causal nature. I think I, you've probably heard the, the summary phrase, no self, no problem, or not self, no problem, not self, no problem. No ownership of what arises. Wow. It's all just happening on its own. Wow. Just finding that place of um, some presence and, and balance of mind in connected receptivity. A lot of it uh, a lot of a lot of it clarifies for itself. Hmm? Don't need to clarify. You don't need to clarify for you. It clarifies. That's good for now. So let's do our uh, sharing of blessings chant together. <laughs> <laughs>